I am the puppet master. I manipulate many of the characters and events you will see. But I'm invented too for your entertainment and amusement. And you, poor creatures, who conjured you out of the clay? <laughs> Is God in show business too? They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Dallas Multipass. You're a stupid mind. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time. Listen. Well, hello, folks. Welcome to the 59th episode of Celluloid Days, a podcast of film and film history. I'll be your host for the day, and my name is Jeff Kelly. We have a full episode today. I'll be yakking for a little while, and then Russell will be joining us, and also Nancy and Gordon. Now, since today is the third Monday of the month, I'm going to talk about a film that, well, I've never seen before. Okay, to be honest, I've seen bits of it before, but never watched the whole thing from beginning to the end. Now, you know, when I decided to do a film podcast... One of the first decisions I made was to try to always be positive. I would try to see some good in a film, even if it's one that I don't appreciate. It's way too easy to go off and be negative. There are many other film podcasts out there who do that. Be negative if that's what you want. Today's film is the 1974 science fiction fantasy film Zardoz by John Borman. This film might push my quest to be positive to the limits, if you know what I mean. So I watched Zardoz without knowing much about it. And as I write this, I have yet to research the film. So the first part of today's show will be, well, my first reaction. The thing is, I watched it once, and then, being confused, I figured I missed something and watched it again. But damn, if at a certain point I just checked out and... I found myself not concerned at all with the plot or the point or the message or anything, and I just sort of watched it and went along for the ride. Have you ever watched a film and thought to yourself, I know the director is trying to say something, but I'm not sure what. This is the case with me and Zardoz. Right away, I knew I was in trouble when the film started and the head of a young man appeared on the screen. I am Arthur Frayne, and I am Zardoz. I have lived 300 years, and I long to die, but death is no longer possible. I am immortal. I present now my story. He seemed to be dressed in, I don't know, a red Egyptian-style headdress and with facial hair that appeared to be drawn on with a Sharpie marker. The head floats around, and he tells us that he is Arthur Frayne and also Zardas. And that he wants to die, but death is no longer possible. He's going to tell us his story. The story takes place in the far future. In this tale, he tells us, he is a fake god and a magician. He's a puppet master. I don't know about all that. To be honest, he was trying to sound all mysterious and mischievous and such. And I was rolling my eyes trying not to laugh. 
My apologies to Mr. Borman, but this sounded like something right out of a high school play. Right after the head's introduction, we have a quick title that tells us it's the year 2293. But then a giant flying stone head drifts into frame. It's a scary looking thing, carved with long hair and a beard, and a mouth that hangs open with the expression of shock or disgust. It's the same expression I have when Wendy's accidentally puts mustard on my double with cheese. With two glowing eyes, it slowly lands on the bleak wasteland. All around are these barbarians, some on horses, some wearing these odd, scary Zardoz masks, all yelling one thing or another. They wear these weird outfits, basically red swim trunks or diapers, and red straps that go over each shoulder that cross over the chest to hold their shotgun shells. Some of these men don't have guns, but they do have shotgun shells. The giant stone head tells them that the penis is evil and then gives them guns to kill all the brutals who multiply. The gun is good. The gun is good! The penis is evil. The penis shoots seeds and makes new life to poison the earth with a plague of men. As once it was. These folks who worship the head have been brought up from brutality to be, I don't know, whatever they are now. And apparently, along with the penis being bad, it is also bad to have children, I guess. As we see in flashbacks later, these men happily kill others while riding their horses along the beach. And on a quick side note here, can I say that I hate in films when people use the expression, where the sea meets the land. The place where the sea meets the land. Just say beach, all right? Cut to some time later after the credits. The head is floating again, and inside, Sean Connery as Zed wakes and wanders around as if he has no idea what's happening. With a pistol in hand, he walks about, and there are these naked people in plastic bags all over the place, and suddenly a man appears at the mouth of the head. It's the man from the intro of the film. Zed quickly turns around and shoots him. But before Arthur falls, he tells Zed that he could have shown him something, and without him, Zed is nothing. Foolish. I could have shown you. Without me, you are nothing. A Okay, whatever. The head lands once again, and Zed steps out to find a land much like 19th century England, I guess. He wanders around trying to figure things out. At one point, he finds this crystal ring in someone's home that he can ask questions, and it'll answer back. What is it? Flower. For what? Decorative. Soon he meets Consuela and May, two women who will examine him and then make him their slaves for at least a while, because eventually he isn't. One of the things they want to know is what happened to Arthur. And we know that Zed had shot Arthur in the giant head. Now the people of this land can't die and are known as Eternals. 
They live a bored, pointless existence. And the big question they have is how men get erections. I kid you not. As part of May's studies of this creature, we're trying to find once again the link between erotic stimulation and erection. This experiment will measure autoerotic stimulation of the cortex, leading to erection. Zed has shown a film of a woman fondling her own naked breasts to see if that'll cause a um, reaction, but no, it doesn't. These Eternals live in a dome or something, or at least there's an invisible barrier that surrounds their village. And outside this dome or barrier are the Brutals. These are folks who can die, and they grow food for the Eternals. Like I said, they're called Eternals because they can't die, even if they want to. But no, that's not right. They can die, but then I guess they're rebuilt, so then they aren't dead. The only punishment these people have is making somebody age. But you have no police, no exterminators. Ah, but we discuss it endlessly. Every little sin and misdemeanor raked over and over. So what happens to him then? He'll get six months at least. Prison. <laughs> Aging. Aging? Yes, I'm getting old myself. Three months here, a year there, these sentences add up. So if you're bad off enough, you'll die. They make you old, but they don't let you die. So what's to stop you killing yourself? I do now and again, but the eternal tabernacle simply rebuilds me. You see, they can't die, but they do die, and they can't grow old unless they're forced to age. And is everybody getting this? It's all very strange. And look, I might not be getting all this right. It's one of those films that starts with a mystery and then never really clues the audience into solving the mystery, I guess. Or if they do, I missed it. We never get a chance to say, ah, I see. Or maybe I'm just not that bright. When a film keeps piling up strangeness after strangeness and never sets up any rules that the audience can hold on to, it's just hard to keep focused. And you know, I usually make it a point not to tell you too much about a film, figuring you may want to watch it yourself. And in case you think I have here, I haven't. This all happens in the first like 15, 20 minutes. The film was written, produced, and directed by John Borman, the man who brought us such films as Deliverance and Excalibur. In those classic films, however, he was the director, not the writer, as in this film. One, I guess, could call this a vanity or passion project. Like I said, it stars Sean Connery as Zed, our hero, I guess. Actually, I don't think there are any heroes in this film. You have a name. My name is Zed. Zed, for Zandas, I am an exterminator. Sean Connery lived from 1930 to 2020, and of course is best known for playing James Bond. I don't think I have to tell you too much about Sean. Originally, Burt Reynolds was supposed to play the lead role, but he had to bow out for health problems. In Sean Connery, well, he had just stopped playing James Bond and and wasn't being offered very much, so that could explain why he took this role. Vortex 4, Controller Consuela, is played by the wonderful Charlotte Rampling. Time enough has gone to finish your study, May. Destroy it. Charlotte was born in 1946 and is still acting today. Her first film was actually The Beatles' A Hard Day's Night. 
She's a dancer in the nightclub. The following year, she starred in the black-and-white British comedy film Rotten to the Core. And since then, she's been in a lot of films, including Gregory Girl from 66, Henry VIII and His Six Wives from 72, the first film I remember her in, Stardust Memories from 1980, and The Swimming Pool from 2003. But like I said, she's done a ton of acting. Consuela's assistant, May, is played by Sarah Kestelman. You must know that you're mentally and physically vastly superior to me. When I first saw her, I thought, I know her from somewhere. But then I looked into her credits and I realized I was probably thinking of someone else. She was born in 1944 and is still alive as of this recording at the age of 78. She's only been in a couple of films, but has done a lot of British TV. Arthur Frain, a.k.a. Zardoz, not the giant rock head, but the dude with the sharpie facial hair, is played by Niall Buggy. As Zardoz said, I was able to choose your forefathers. It was careful genetic breeding that produced this mutant, this slave who could free his masters, <laughs> and friend was my accomplice. <laughs> Don't you remember the man in the library, Zed? It was I who led you to the Wizard of Oz book. Niall was born in 1948, and he is also still alive at 78. Zardoz was only his second film, and I can't say I'm familiar with his work. According to IMDb, he had been in many films, including Alien 3 from 93, The Reckoning from 2002, and Mamma Mia! The Movie from 2008. But I have to admit, I haven't seen any of those movies. And personally, I don't know if he was really right for this film. I don't know if it was him or the dialogue he was asked to speak, but I found his character quite, well, silly. And I don't mean that in a good way. John Alderton plays a character named Friend. Now hear this, you old farts. Meet this creature from the outside world. Huh? This man huh? has the gift of death. He was born in 1940, and at 82, he's still alive. In fact, it seems everybody but Sean is still alive, so hey, they could do a sequel. No, don't say that. Anyway, he's the guy who's punished and is forced to age into an old man. He's another dude who looked familiar, but looking through his IMDb, I guess not. You know, I've been talking for quite a while, so I think I'm going to take a break, and we're going to hear what Nancy and Gordon have to say about Zardoz. Perhaps they can tell us why Arthur has vanished so mysteriously. So Gordon and I just finished watching Zardoz. Zardoz. Yes, I've got I've got Zed here with me in the flesh to talk about Zardoz just a little bit. Um, we're not going to go crazy because I know Jeff's covering things, but this is a film that I saw in my early 20s. I was in college, and this was before home video. So we had to wait for it to come on late night television, some movie. And of course, the version I saw way back then was heavily edited for tel television. So you can just guess what kinds of things were, were missing and that were new to me on this viewing. For one thing, uh, this is in color and we only had a black and white TV back then. And um, so I'm sure they, they edited out the nudity and some of the weird stuff. So no wonder it was very incomprehensible when I watched it as basically a kid. Gordon, you had not seen it. No, I hadn't. I'd seen bits and pieces. Um, a very good friend of mine, uh, however, was fascinated by the film, but 
back in the 70s when I, you know, was familiar with it back when it came out. Uh, again, unless you went to the theater, you weren't going to see it. And it didn't come on TV for quite a while. And by then yeah. I'd sort of forgotten about it. But this friend of mine, Brad, was just absolutely agog with it. He was also into James Bond stuff, so he liked Connery. Um, but, you know, it was amusing. And he, you know, did point out some interesting stuff to me about the weaponry and whatnot. Yeah, it's uh, this is definitely a product of the time. It's one of Borman's earlier films. He had just come off of doing Deliverance, so he had a lot of street, street cred with the film industry. And so they, oh, you want to make a sci-fi movie? Great, here you go. Here's some money. Go do the thing. They didn't give him a lot of money. So they, you can see that they didn't have a huge budget for this, but they made good use of what they had. And I think um, if we want to talk about some of the things we liked about the movie, I thought they did a good job with the effects. They did. For the uh, time. Considering that it was all on film. Yeah. Uh, they did a pretty good job. So, yeah, there's some, the, the matte painting of the, you know, the wide shot of the valley is a little janky, but the flying head sequences. Yeah, that's pretty good. They hold up. It looks good. It looks good. Uh the makeup is really good in this. They, when friend gets, you know, years taken off his life and he's sort of half aged on one side, I, that's really well done. Well, and also in the, one of the scenes where they're children, he looks like about a 15, 16 year old kid. Yeah. And then they have him as this half old man and it, it all looks real. Yeah. It's good. And it's good casting too. Cause he's got one of those sort of pretty boy angelic faces anyway so they can make him look as young as they want but yeah i there's there's a lot to like they the costuming is very 60s late 60s early 70s it's very colorful it's very edgy there's a lot of skin in this movie a lot of skin in this movie but not total skin but it's not just, total skin it's just a lot, well it's a lot of topless stuff yeah so it's Overall, I find it very stagey. It looks like a, it's very, it's an odd combo of a sci-fi film that has it's like crossbred with an art film. It's yeah, very it artsy. It feels like a, a late '60s stage play with interpretive dance and weird psychedelic, you know, projections, rear screen projections and front projections. And you know, it's it's what you had if you wanted something to be trippy. You did a lot of projecting and and you know after about an hour of this movie you're like okay microscope shots of pond water i get it it's a paramecium it's a euglena it's diatoms okay <laughs> you know they didn't have the resources that we have now to do basically anything you want with cg it's definitely an acid trip kind of it's thing. very trippy very trippy so you know what there's a lot to like there's a lot not to like the editing is kind of choppy at times but it's a product of its time, and it's uh, it's part of that whole late 60s, early 70s fascination with the idea of dystopia and post-apocalyptic culture and, and all this. And Borman puts his own spin on it. And one of the things that you see in dystopian fiction is this, you know, are we going to have a utopia or is it going to be you know, Mad Max utter chaos. Right. Are we going to heaven or hell? Yeah, and this movie gives you both. And in and in this case, the heaven is actually kind of a hell too because these people, they're not technically immortal. They're just extremely long-lived and they can't, every, if they try and die, the, the machine puts them back together and throws them back into the pond. And 
So they're just tired of it all and they're bored and it's and it's a it's definitely an object lesson in the dangers of, you know, human pride and hubris. And and, and there's some definite similarities with the time machine with H.G. Wells's time mm, machine mm, with mm, mm. you have the brutal and whatnot and then you have these immortals mm-hmm. and although yeah. they don't really fight or anything there's still this similar juxtaposition of yeah the upper class versus the lower class mm-hmm. and the upper class but each, each one is sort of um preying on but also looking to the other um you know with envy mm-hmm. so anyway there's and that seems to be kind of a, a pretty standard refrain so I guess if we get right down to it, we're not going to go too long for various reasons today, but definitely since I've got Gordon here, wanted to talk about the firearms in this film. Now, I guess for production, they could not bring in firearms to Ireland. They had a hard, they had, so they had to make do with what they could get, either what they could bring with them or what they could scrounge up there in Ireland. And I think it kind of works it's it's firearm technology, but thank goodness they didn't say, oh, we're just going to give them ray guns and stuff, because that would have made it super cheesy. Instead, you get this nice blend of old and new and, you know, technology, older firearm technology that works, but there's some cool stuff in there. Yeah, the, the rifles that are shown are actually, from what I can look at and see, oh, these are British-made Enfields. On the Irish contract, there's sort of an odd little thing there on this Irish contract uh, for these Lee Enfield bolt-action rifles that were the standard British service rifle in World War II. But they have this really cool knife bayonet on them, and I can see it's like, oh, okay, there we go. That's 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 probably the Irish contract. And since they weren't allowed to bring any in, they probably just rented some from. Mm-hmm. Uh, either the local constabulary or some prop house could get a hold of them or what. The oddball thing, however, is the the revolver that Connery carries. And in fact, most of the the exterminators um, are carrying. Uh, it's this thing called a Webley Fosbury. And it's a weirdo in that it's an automatic revolver. It's a self-cocking revolver that the whole top part slides on the lower receiver so that the recoil... We'll bring the barrel and cylinder back and recock it, revolve the cylinder to the next chamber, and then you pull the trigger and fire it. And so it you does don't this. have to keep pulling a hammer back right. or doing or, a hard trigger pull to pull the hammer back. Correct. So it shoots like a semi automatic pistol. But Unless it's a you're using blanks. Unless you're using <laughs> blanks. And there's certainly one scene where you can see Connery having to um, manually. manually, what you would call jack the slide or pull back the slide mm-hmm. he's having to pull back the barrel and cylinder to Every recock time. it and get it which also of course turns the cylinder one more notch to the next chamber anyway it's like this is a very odd choice i guess in that free-for-all at the end some of the exterminators just have regular wedleys yes too. yep yeah. yep you can tell that a couple of them and, and you know which makes sense because they were a rare gun and where in the heck they got it and why they used it i have no idea it's kind cool that they made that the hero gun because it's it is unique it definitely is unique. kind of steampunky it was it was something that was sort of popular in the trenches with british officers it was never an issue piece at all the, it seems like the the um the slide 
channels on the cylinder would be easily gunked up by mud or yes, whatever. Yes, yes. So the British Army never issued these things. But, you know, they managed to sell them to some officers who thought they were pretty cool. And I guess they work reasonably well as long as you've got somebody to keep it clean for you. Um, you know, <laughs> that's what that's, your Batman is for. <clears throat> precisely. Uh, so, I mean, but it's a it's an oddball, kind of cool, iconic weapon. And the Internet Movie Fire Internet Movie Firearms Database, not to be confused with the Internet Movie Database, actually has a Zardoz page. And I went there, and they have a nice picture of that Webley Fosbury, and then the other Webley, the Enfield, and I guess. In this, in uh, at some point, I don't know if it's the gun barfing scene at the beginning or the free for all at the end, but there are some M16s and if yes, a few that's odd in the things. that's in the barfing out scene. Okay, yeah. uh, and there's guys picking up M16s, which the British call an Armalite, because well, that was anyway. That's who made it. <clears throat> yeah, that's who designed it. It was an Armalite Corporation, um, and uh, a bunch of double barrel shotguns are in this pile of stuff yeah. too. So there's all kinds of stuff in this pile. And if you're but, a gun person and you watch this movie, you're going to cringe so hard when you see that because it's like the the flying god head comes and here are your weapons, and it just kind of is this spew of rifles comes flying through the air. And I'm thinking, they're all going to be broken when they land. You can't do that with firearms. So it makes me wonder, were they all rubber guns and plastic guns Could for that moment? And then they show the pile on the ground. They cut to the pile on the right. ground. They never show them getting cra- you know, crashing yeah. into a pile. Because so. if you're renting these firearms, you don't want to destroy all of them because now you've eaten that. Anyway, that's, bottom, yeah. yeah, that's my aside. But so I'm assuming that they were just rubber, but and they also, oddly enough, they actually spew ammunition because you Yeah, you can see the shotgun shells flying through the air too. So if you get if you manage to grab a shotgun, you're good. Everybody else, sorry. You don't have any you don't have any ammo. Although I guess they were throwing some bandoliers full of ammo. Oh yeah. And of course this is a classic Hollywood the bandolier that Sean Connery's wearing with the ammunition in it doesn't fit the Fosbury. The Fosbury. Yeah, of course not. But it looks cool. It looks good, yeah. Yes. It's an iconic film, and... I like his boots. Oh, yes. Well, that's because you have some. Well, well, yeah, but I mean, I like, <laughs> I like those nice top, top It's in The costume design in this is very clever, and again, very theatrical and very, very. stagey. It's not practical. This is not a serious look at what the future might hold it's very kind of like high-end doctor who interpretation of the future yeah riding around on the the heath of ireland in a loincloth yeah wearing a a diaper and high boots and and uh, cross cross bandoliers well that's why they put the sheepskins on the saddles it wasn't to hide the modern saddles it was to make it more comfortable well yeah because the the Personal experience suggests that the stirrup is going to pinch the heck out of your mm-hmm. legs. The bare skin is there because that's just how it works. Yeah. So, <laughs> so uh, we got to give these guys tall boots. And yes, I was wearing pants. It's just that they were short. Okay. <laughs> anyway, that's our little take on Zardoz, an iconic film from the early 70s. It's very trippy. We we watched it in two goes because it was just getting late, and we were like, I can't take any more of this movie. Let's just finish it the next day. It is a very strange film. It's very strange, and I can see why it was received with some dismay and confusion when it first came out. But there you go. 
Uh, that's our. That's the Fry family take on Zardoz. Brutal. Thanks, Nancy and Gordon. You know, you can tell by the way you guys talk that I know nothing about guns. It didn't even occur to me that those straps with the bullets over their shoulders were called bandoleros. So what do I know? But I'm glad you brought up the fact that the effects were very good. I did. I was going to talk about that myself. The the flying stone head thing in particular looked very good. One of the positives of this movie. And you're right. It is a product of its time. Personally, I think Borman was a little over his head here, but maybe that's just me. And Gordon, I never thought about the connection between this and H.G. Wells' The Time Machine. You're right. Um, thank you, guys. It's always a pleasure to hear what you have to say. I found a video on YouTube, a short video with John Borman talking about Zardoz. He said... Yesterday, I went to Fox. Uh, they're restoring a film I made, uh, Zardoz. Um... They wrote to me and said they were restoring it. I said, why? And, and they said, well, there's a lot of interest in it. Oh, really? Um, and so, you know, it's one of those films that went from being a failure to a classic without ever passing through success. In an interview from 1974 in Sight and Sound magazine, Borman had this to say. And then I thought of there being an elite of privileged people who would have the technology to survive using the Earth spaceship that would be regenerated and protected from the outside world. From there, the story gradually began to emerge, taking on the classic form of a quest myth, which is the form I tend to work in. The idea developed of a character from the outside who would penetrate it. He would be mysteriously chosen and at the same time manipulated. And I wanted the story to be told in the form of a mystery, with clues and riddles which unfold, the truth slowly peeling away. As soon as I hit on the idea of a mythical hero character, the innocent who finds knowledge, the Arthur Merlin relationship came quite easy. And I think all the time I spent preparing Lord of the Rings began to have an effect, and I'm much more familiar with Tolkien than I am with science fiction. If you don't know, for a long time, Borman was preparing a Lord of the Rings movie that never happened. And now I'm going to take another break. We're going to hear what Russell has to say about Zardoz. Hello celluloiders. To give some context on John Borman's Zardoz, we're going to take a look at some speculative fiction movies made in the period between 2001 A Space Odyssey and Star Wars, viz. 1969 to 2001 made a big difference to the way science fiction films were made and perceived. It was a big, expensive, hard SF movie from a noted producer-director which dealt with big things and was made in a dead serious manner and garnered the attention of serious critics and intellectual commentators. In effect, it made the genre respectable. As a result, a series of high-budget films appeared from named directors with name actors dealing with pressing themes of the age such as overpopulation, dangers from rampant technology, environmentalism, totalitarianism and assorted other isms. 
Low-budget sci-fi adventure and action films continue to be made, but these also contain similar themes, as opposed to Invasion by Rubber Aliens, as previously. Many of these films were like 2001, based on novels by noted writers, such as Michael Crichton, John Christopher, Anthony Burgess, Richard Matheson, Kurt Vonnegut, Harry Harrison, and others. 1969 had Colossus, the Forbin Project, where an advanced computer becomes aware and threatens to unleash nuclear terror unless governments comply with its wishes. Interestingly, this was also the premise behind the later Terminator movie series. 1970 saw Robert Weiss's The Andromeda Strain, where the familiar theme of disease from space was given a verisimilitude by a big high-tech complex designed to deal with such dangers. No blade of grass in the same year had a crop-destroying environmental disaster lead to a mass social breakdown, while THX 1138 from newcomer George Lucas portrayed a rebel in a high-tech and highly controlled dystopia. In 1971, Kubrick returned with A Clockwork Orange, where a violent, amoral gang leader is subjected to experimental mental conditioning with dire results, while Charlton Heston fought off survivors of germ warfare in The Amiga Man. Douglas Trumbull's silent running saw Bruce Dern harness 2001-style spaceships FX to try and protect the world's remaining forest in space, while ZPG saw Oliver Reed and Geraldine Chaplin try to have a family in a world where birth was forbidden. Slaughterhouse-Five has everyman Billy Pilgrim become unstuck in time, and he lives his life out of sequence, so that he flips between the horrific World War II firebombing of Dresden and also his life as a zoo exhibit on the planet Trafaldemore. 1973 was a bumper year, as apart from Zardoz, it saw the Day of the Dolphin, where an experiment in communication between man and dolphin is subverted by right-wing terrorists for an assassination plot. Phase 4 had ants taken ecological revenge on a science research team, while Soylent Green saw Charlton Heston back as a cop in a horrifically overcrowded New York, who finds out exactly what the secret source is in the world's most popular food. Westworld had the advanced robots of the theme park become self-conscious and rebel against hapless holidaymakers. This film was so popular it spawned a sequel Future World in 1977 and was recently revived as a popular HBO series. 1974 had advanced robots meet women's lib in the form of the Stepford Wives, where new arrival in town Catherine Ross finds out that the members of an exclusive men's club have replaced their wives with perfect women in the form of android replicas and that she's next on the list. This movie was recently remade with Nicole Kidman, but she had so much Botox cosmetic treatment that it was difficult to tell when she was being a robot and when she was being human. 1975 saw Rollerball, where the ultraviolent title sport is used to distract the masses from rule by dictatorial corporations in the year 2018, and aren't you glad that never happened? 1976 had Logan's Run, a disco-area dystopia where people live luxuriously in giant shopping malls, but are killed off at 30 to prevent health and overcrowding issues. Michael York and Jenny Egger had defied the system and pursued in a big chase until everything blows up for no very good reason. Post-1976 cinema saw Star Wars Close Encounters an Alien, which changed everything, but 1977's Demon Seed was a last hurrah and features another supercomputer taking a fancy to its programmer's wife to recreate itself in the outside world. Borman's Zardoz fits in with these movies like a glove. To quote Phil Hardy's 1984 Encyclopedia of Science Fiction movies, Zardoz is a film which destroys the genre to which it belongs to create it anew. 
Borman attempts a philosophical disquisition in which freedom and death are interlocked and science represents unfreedom as opposed to magic by which Connery's Z gains access to the life support system of the Eternals, which he then destroys. Wow, and some people thought it was just a movie about Sean Connery running around his underwear. One of those critics was John Brosnan, who in his 1978 book Future Tense called Zardoz a contender for the most pretentious and self-indulgent SF film ever made. Brosnan didn't like what last week's Excalibur either, or Star Trek and uh, about 90% of SF stuff. So, what do I think? I first saw Sardoz in my callow sci-fi youth years in the late 70s, where I attempted to watch every genre movie I could, no mean feat in the pre-VHS years. I didn't take it so highfalutin as Phil Hardy does, but yeah, I kind of liked it, and I saw it as an allegorical view of the class struggle of the proletariat versus elite oppressors. I was a bit of a Marxist back then, but now I'm just a socialist hardliner. Watching it again for the podcast, I thought it was a very 70s movie. I was put in mind of this more esoteric space 1999s, and clearly it was a very personal vision from John Borman and not a Saturday afternoon programmer. I still like it, but it's definitely a movie you have to be in the right frame of mind for. I also think the criticism of Connery's costume is uncalled for. It makes perfect sense and works in context, and it's just a snide sort of comments people make when they're knocking something. You can see why there are such widely differing views from the likes of Mr. Hardy and Mr. Brosnan, and why the movie did not do well at the box office, barely making back the, its cost from US rentals. This is also in keeping with genre movies of the period, of the 18 films mentioned, half were commercially successful and or hits, a couple were flops and the remainder middling, while the critics praised half and castigated the rest. Interestingly, it was the tepid response to a serious film, THX 1138, that made Lucas focus on pure entertainment films. From Wiki, the most successful commercial SF films of the period was Rollerball with $30 million, Logan's Run with 26 and Westworld at $10 million. But these earnings are minor compared to, get to the rentals of Star Wars, Closer Cars of the Third Kind and Alien, even adjusting for the 70s high inflation. Over to you, Jeff. I will not be one mind with you. I know what... I know what May wants with that. No! Thanks, Russell. So I think what you're saying is we have Stanley Kubrick to blame for everything else that came before Star Wars. <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah, you brought a lot of memories back talking about all these other films. Um, and recently, a listener of the show named Jeff suggested that we do Colossus, the Forbin Project. So maybe we'll do that in the next month or so. And you also make me feel a little guilty about making fun of uh, Sean Connery's outfit. But perhaps you're right. Perhaps, considering the time and the place, it made sense. So, Anyway, thanks a lot, Russell. Now, I can't say that I have a favorite scene in this film. But there was one scene that made me laugh. Near the beginning, Sean, as Zed, is supposed to enter the small pyramid. It's like three feet high. Now, if you've ever seen a Doctor Who episode in which there's a TARDIS that is not a police box, they usually have the characters just walk behind it so they don't have to build a door. It was sort of like that. Sean walks behind the pyramid. But since the pyramid is short, of course, we still see the top half of Zed. Now, the idea is he enters into the pyramid, then falls through like a hole in the bottom. It's obvious there's no hole there, so Sean just puts his hands up and basically ducks down in a pretty obvious way. Go on. 
have a theory about watching films. Well, it's not so much a theory. It's just the way I think films should be viewed. And I'm going to use 2001, A Space Odyssey, for an example. I think you should just watch a film as if the film are actual events. And what you're seeing in the film is all the information that you have about those events, right? Once the film's over, you can try to connect the dots and make up your own mind of what actually happened, what the story was about. 2001 being a prime example because the story is so mysterious. One day I found myself on YouTube watching a lot of videos where people tried to explain 2001. I heard a lot of comments like, In an interview, Stanley Kubrick said this, or Arthur C. Clarke once wrote that this was blah blah blah. And in my way of thinking, that's all garbage. The director or writer of a film can say all they want about what they meant or what a certain image like the space baby was supposed to represent, but no. If that is what you meant, you should have put it in the film. If it's not in the film, it doesn't count. Once you release a film, it is no longer yours. It is whatever the viewer interprets it to be. It's like when an artist tries to tell us what their painting is supposed to represent, what they were trying to say by putting brush to canvas. Sorry, artists, but the meaning of your painting is now only what the eyes of the viewer gets out of the painting. If you have to explain it, you failed. That, in my opinion, is art. It is created for the outsider to reflect on how it affects them personally, and it has nothing to do with what the artist is trying to say. Me and you can see 2001 A Space Odyssey is a totally different story if we look at it differently. All that being said, what I got out of this story, Zardoz, is that the future will suck and a man with a ponytail who kills on the order of a giant rock head can be a hero. Now we can say yes to death, but never again, no. Now we must make our farewells. Also in the future, females will allow their naked breasts to be seen anytime. And if that's what you want to see, well, this film might be for you. In fact, Borman said in the audio commentary for the film that due to the political and cultural conditions in Ireland at the time, that's where it was filmed, Ireland, it was very difficult to get women to bare their breasts, as nudity was a prominent feature in several sequences. He also added that a ban on importing rifles, which had been imposed because of the Irish Republican Army, had nearly prevented the film from being made. So I didn't really spend a lot of time researching this film or John Borman. If, if you listen to last week's show, I talked about Borman quite a bit. And to be honest, I am not a fan of this movie. In fact, after today, I doubt I'll watch this again. But, you know, I've read that this film has become a cult classic over the years. It has a cult following. And I'm like, of course it has. Tommy Wiseau's The Room... Samurai Cop and Birdemic Shock and Terror all have cult followings. No matter what you make in this world, there's always an audience for you, which I guess is a good thing. So I had to find out what others thought about Zardoz. And of course, for that, I turned to Rotten Tomatoes. It gets a 53% audience score, a bit higher than I would have thought. Adrian F. gave it 5 out of 5 stars, and he wrote... A masterpiece. Minimum character requirement. Uh, 
Adrian, I don't know what you mean by that. Sorry. Rob F. gave it five stars, and he wrote, This Prussian film is so underrated it hurts, probably because its concepts is way over the head of the public. Long before the war on masculinity, Sardis warned of the destruction of civilization using a highly intellectual screenplay and production. If you're looking for a futuristic version of Cowboys and Indians, you're barking up the wrong tree. If you're tired of car chases and, and hungering for a highly intellectual experience, this is the real deal. Go big screen if you can on this one. Well, Bob, if you can hear me up on your pedestal there, I guess you're a lot smarter man than I. Delissa D. thought this film only deserved three stars, and he wrote, Zardoz is one of the dumbest films I've ever seen. Still, I thought it was mildly entertaining and certainly weird. Better if you're really high when you see it. So maybe drugs would help? Hmm, I don't think I'm going to go that direction, but thanks for the suggestion. Jennifer N. gave it only two stars, and she wrote, I definitely recommend drugs of some kind before watching this. Sober will make your head hurt, but completely worth it to see Sean Connery in his outfit. Jennifer and Delicid should get together. I think they're into the same things. Sean G. only gave it one star, and he had this to say. Zardoz is another of a long list of pieces of quote-unquote art that fails because the artist was given too much freedom and perhaps believes their own hype too much. Writer-director John Borman had great success with Deliverance and was given carte blanche to make Zardoz. The result is a painfully self-indulgent, incoherent, boring mess. Well, Sean, don't hold back. What did you really think of this movie? And lastly, someone who failed to leave their name gave it three stars and just wrote, The 70s must have been one hell of a time. Wow. Just wow. As a man who grew up in the 70s, I will say it was a hell of a time. The music for the film was created by David Monroe. He lived from 1943 to 1976. He was a British musician and early music historian who only did a few things in TV and film. His music for this film was sort of minimalistic, I think. I mean, it's not overwhelming. He used bits of Beethoven's Symphony No. 7, along with a variety of medieval instruments, including notch flutes, medieval bells, and gems horns. We get this kind of a thing a lot. But all in all, I thought the music was pretty good and fit with the film well. You know, although Zardoz was considered a flop when it came out, it did manage to make a profit, and that's probably because it was made for so little money. Most critics hated this film upon its release, but over the years, some began to change their tune. In 1985, Jonathan Rosenbaum, reviewing for the Chicago Reader, called it John Borman's most underrated film and impossibly ambitious and pretentious, but also highly inventive, provocative, and visually striking science fiction adventure with metaphysical trimmings. Come along on the most exciting space adventure ever. Ten men, two women. 
clean by ultrasound and massaged by airspray jets. <laughs> when I get back to Stockholm, I'm gonna have one installed in my apartment. When two lovers disappear behind a solid wall of ice, you are there as deadly lunar ash swallows noted scientists. You are there when flaming meteors attack. You are there to see the weird hieroglyphics of disaster. We advise and warn you, return to Earth at once. We have the power to immobilize you at will. You are there. A little bit before I go. So I blame Nancy for this, me watching this film. She posted a picture of Connery in his Zardoz outfit a, a while back and suggested we talk about this film. Ha! Huh. Just kidding, Nancy. It worked because it's one of those films that I always intended to watch but never did. So, well, now I have. And I know what I've been missing. I also have to give a shout-out to Jeffrey Strubba. And Jeffrey, I, I know I always pronounce your last name wrong. Anyway, he suggested this film way back in May of last year, and we just never got around to it until now. In fact, Jeff has made quite a few suggestions, and, you know, eventually we get around to them. That's a reminder to all of you out there, if you have a suggestion for a film I might not have seen before, let me know. That's one of the points of this show. And if you have any thoughts on Zardoz... Did I get anything wrong? Do you want to correct me? Do you have an opinion? I'd love to hear your comments. You can send them to daysofcelluloid at gmail.com. Days of Celluloid all mean one word. You can email me with your thoughts, opinions, suggestions, or even just to say hi. Or you can use my Facebook page. It's called Celluloid Days. And we're on Twitter. It's at celluloid underscore days. Next week, we're going to talk about a film that was featured on Mystery Science Theater 3000 on episode 524, and that's 12 to the Moon. You know, I don't remember this one. I know I've got it, and I'm going to have to dig out the DVD. Now, before I leave, I have one more request. If you could leave me a review, make it a fantastic one, at wherever you stream this podcast, and hey, I'll be forever grateful. I want to thank Nancy, Gordon, and Russell for contributing to today's show, and of course to all of you out there for listening. Thank you so much. Take care. I'll be back next Monday. Goodbye. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace, and what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Dallas Multipass. You're stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time.